0: How important to you is honesty? Oh, I hear varies. Ooh, okay. Uh, I was really, um, I don't know if I was surprised by this, but it struck me as maybe a little odd uh, to read a few articles where today's politicians were pointing to who their heroes were. And the two biggest wigs right now, I guess, in American politics, both pointed to Abraham Lincoln as their inspiration for being president. So Hillary Clinton said that Abe is the president she most admires, ranking above her husband and her former boss. And Donald Trump insisted that he can be more presidential than anyone other than the great Abe Lincoln. So they're both big fans of Abe. But does anyone here remember Abraham Lincoln's nickname? Honest Abe, how honest do you think our two finalists for president are? (laughs) Now, according to a recent poll done by the Washington Post and ABC News, 59% of Americans said that Clinton is not, quote, honest or trustworthy. And 69% said that about Trump. Yet... When 2,000 Americans were surveyed, we responded that our most important qualification for picking a president is that they be honest and trustworthy. S.E. Cupp is a, a, a reporter for the New York Daily News, and she put it this way. She said, but for all the public fealty to honest Abe, there's little, if any, fealty to actual honesty by our leading candidates for president. In the Democrats' presumptive nominee, Hillary Clinton, and the Republicans, Donald Trump, we the people have likely chosen two of the most provably dishonest candidates in modern history, all the while insisting honesty like totally matters to us. Who are we kidding, she asked. (laughs) So do we really think that honesty is that important? Whether you're a Trump supporter or a Hillary supporter, it seems that we like to think it's important, but when it gets down to it, when we get to choose, other things seem to motivate us. So what's the big deal about honesty? Right now we're in the middle of a series on virtue. And to understand the importance and benefits of virtue, we've been looking at a list that the early church father Paul put together in a letter that he sent to a church that he started in Galatia. It's a list that's referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. And this week we've come to the fruit of faithfulness. Faithfulness is the fruit that describes, quote, being true, being a person of integrity, being whole. What we are, and what we're going to see this week is that faithfulness is connected directly to being a whole person, and that without it, we can find ourselves unstable and maybe even dangerous to the people around us. So before we read our passage I want to give thanks to Tim Keller. He wrote, he uh, I heard two sermons of his on integrity that really helped me write this one. So let me read our passage for today. This is Ephesians 4 starting in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Moving ahead to verse 20. That, that—that however, is not the way of life you've learned. When you heard about Christ, you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members of one body. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for, the, for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Now, in this passage, I think we can see at least four things that represent the fruit or can represent the fruit of faithfulness in our lives. First, faithful people refuse to deceive. Now, you'll notice that deceitful scheming leads to what Paul calls instability, while speaking the truth leads to growth. And so the people reading Paul's letter here are encouraged to put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we're all one body. Meaning that deceitfulness threatens the entire community while faithfulness can build it up. In other words, when we misrepresent reality, when we deceive, we hurt the people around us. That doesn't sound too crazy, does it? But how? Well, I think what we can learn today is that we undercut other people's personal self of well-being and dignity when we're deceitful. But before we get to that, let's just take a moment to divine, define what we mean by deception. So I think this an idea that I read about recently that's known as speech theory can really help us with this. Speech theory says basically that what you say has two aspects to it. The actual words themselves and what those words are supposed to make you want to do or communicate to you. Every word is also a deed. They provide info, but they're also trying to get something done. So when you're trying to decide if a statement is truthful, you have to evaluate whether it's accurate and also what its purpose is. So a truthful statement can be deceitful. Try this on for size. Let's say you work at an office and one of your best friends is Mr. A, okay? Now you know, because he's your best friend, that Mr. A stole some things from the office, okay? You know. So, when your boss comes to you and says, Did Mr. A steal anything on Thursday? And you know that he did, and you respond, I saw Mr. B in the office late Thursday night. That's a true statement. You did see Mr. B. But the purpose of the statement is to misdirect the person who's asking you the question, to deceive them, to put their focus on Mr. B instead of Mr. A. Does that make sense? So it's not just what you say, it's what you intend your words to do that can make them deceitful. You can say something true but you're trying to manipulate someone, and it's deceitful. In the Bible, any word that deliberately tries to hide reality from the listeners is considered untruthful and potentially harmful. Generally, and I don't think we always realize this, when we tell a lie, it's self-serving. We're trying to protect our image, our prospects, our reputation. We aren't really thinking of the other person's interests, but rather protecting our own. We're creating in others a misperception of reality that will benefit us with little regard for how it will affect them. And this can take the form of lies, exaggerations, half-truths, even, even misleading silences. And so when we find out that we've been lied to, it really cuts. You know, there's often a sense of betrayal. Betrayal is when one person pretends that you are important when really something else is more important to them. When we lie, this is what happens. We tell the people around us that my well-being, my reputation, my security is more important than yours, and I misrepresented something to benefit me, and I used you to my own ends. In essence, you are less than me. I can use you, and this undercuts the dignity, the sense of value that we're all created to have And that God wants to protect with the command, do not bear false witness. Now you might say this, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sometimes I shade the truth just a little bit for the benefit of others. They're white lies. They protect the feelings of my friends. I'm more concerned about them than me. Statements like this, Phyllis, you haven't aged a day. Oh, I would love to go, but I'll be out of town that day. Or your answer to, what did you think of my short story? Or your answer to, does this outfit make me look fat? (laughs) Now, we often think that when we shade the truth and in these situations, we're helping the person we're speaking with. At least we're sparing their feelings. But if we look a little bit deeper, I'm not sure that we are. On the surface we're being nice, but in the end I don't think this approach is is helping. You know do you know and here's why. Harmless lies, lies in general, undercut the dignity of people. Because when you shade the truth, even in an apparently benevolent way, you're basically saying you can't handle the truth. And we take this approach in other areas of our lives, and we should. But generally, we take it with children. You know, I grew up in the church. I went, to, I went to Sunday school every week. My dad was a pastor. I mean, every week. We were there every week. I don't even know if we ever took a Sunday off. I was the kid that the teachers would want me not to answer questions because I knew all the answers to all the Bible stories and what happened. It, and it was like, Brad, why don't you sit this one out? But an interesting thing happened around, I don't know, my late teens... When I started reading the Bible for myself, I was like, oh my gosh, what? I had to read certain stories two or three times because they were full of adultery, incest, murder. It's like, where did all this come from? I hadn't heard any of this stuff. I was like, this is crazy. I'm reading this again because I don't believe I just read this. Because when I was a kid, I probably wasn't ready to process the truth of all of the stories in the Bible, right? There's some tough stuff in the Bible and some really nasty stuff happens. Now, I think that's appropriate for kids. But when I was adult, I could read all of the stories. And we need to remember that when we hide the truth from adults around us, that we're treating them like children, like they aren't mature enough to handle the truth that I can handle. I saw this really up close and personally a few years ago. I was a part of a team from the United States that was going to a, a conference that was uh, designed to help support uh, some Kenyan pastors as they were establishing their own church association. And so we were going there to encourage them and support them. And we had been working loosely with a, another uh, um, a conglomeration of churches from another Western nation. And what happened bev- right before we had, at, had headed out for this conference was there had been a big scandal, And a pastor in a Kenyan church, a white pastor, had run away with another person on staff. And when we got there, we found out that the other conglomeration of churches wouldn't give the Kenyan pastors the whole story. Hadn't told them what really had happened. And so when we got there, we're like, hey, here's we didn't weren't so flippant, but we were like, here's what happened this happened, this happened, this is really terrible, this is really terrible, this is a And the Kenyan pastors were, rightly, very upset because they hadn't been told the truth. And the thing they said to us over and over and over was this, why are you treating us like children? The misdirection, the secrecy, the hiding of details, the deception communicated that they were not mature enough to handle the truth. And if you add that to the histories of racism and colonialism that they'd all experienced, it was very upsetting, and rightly so. Deception serves to help us, not the people that we deceive. Let's not fool ourselves. If you're deceiving someone, you're using them to your ends and belittling them in the process. But faithfulness isn't just about telling the truth. Faithful people also keep their word. And here's where I need to take a step back, because if there's a part of this sermon, you know, um, sometimes as I study the Bible and as I prepare sermons like 45 to 50 times a year, there's some things that I know are true that I want to be doing in my life, but I'm failing. I feel like this is one of those areas. I feel like I've made some big promises in my life And then as time has gone on, I haven't followed through the way that I really feel like I should. So as I talk about this one, I don't want to come off as an expert at all. I just want, when I look back over my life, I wish that I had lived this way. The verse I think that's really helpful for this, and this is faithful people keep their word, is this. Uh, Paul says, for we we are all members of one body. This phrase, we're all members of one body, communicates that we're all in a covenantal relationship with each other. That's what Paul's getting at, meaning we all make promises to each other. Now, we don't like promises very much these days. They're not very popular. They seem limiting. If we make a promise to one thing, that means we lose all of our other options. We feel like we're losing our freedom when we make a promise. Yeah? Yeah? I learned this week that the Oxford Dictionary recently added a new word to their official dictionary. That word, FOMO. You know that. You know what that stands for? Fear of missing out. Here's the definition: Anxiety that an exciting or interesting event may currently be happening elsewhere, often aroused by posts seen on a social media websites. FOMO, fear of missing out. And we're so concerned on a given weekend that we're missing the best party that it's hard to commit to go to one party, let alone committing to a person long-term. That type of promise, that type of commitment is like otherworldly, I think sometimes in our current context. But here's the thing that I'd like to suggest that we're missing when we don't commit or when we're afraid to commit. And this might surprise you. I feel like what we're actually missing is freedom. Now, that might seem, a little co- seem like the opposite of what you would expect. Commitment, I'm arguing today, is actually something that brings freedom into your life, not restriction. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton said this, A promise is an appointment you make for the future. In other words, just as something like forgiveness frees us from our past... A promise frees us from our future. It's a way of saying, I will not be controlled by my surroundings, my impulses, my genes, or my history. And we tend to think that we must not make and keep promises, that promises are binding, that they steal our freedom, they take happiness from us. But what we miss is that without promises, or when we break promises, we're just becoming slaves. Slaves to our glands, slaves to our past, to our feelings in the moment, those things start to control us. Lewis Smedes put it this way. He said, when we make a promise, we take it on our feeble wills to keep a future rendezvous with someone in circumstances we cannot possibly predict. We take it on ourselves to create our future with someone else no matter what fate or destiny may have in store. This is almost ultimate freedom, he says. If we don't make promises, if we don't have commitments, we can be like this passage said, tossed and turned by, the, by anything that comes along. Trustworthy people also are whole people. Verse 25 says, put off falsehood. That's an interesting term. The word falsehood, if you look at it in Greek, it has this part of speech called pseudo. You know what pseudo is, fake. You know, if you have pseudo leather, it's not real leather. You know, if you have pseudo anything, it's not the real thing. It just sort of approximates it or looks like it. It's the opposite of integrity. And integrity is an interesting word because right in the middle of it, is this thing also where we get the uh, word integer. Does anyone remember like fourth or fifth grade math what an integer is? There's no shame if you don't. Some people do. You're teachers, I know. I see you nodding. a A whole number, right. An integer is a whole number. There's no fractions. There's no decimals. It just it's whole. It's complete. It is. When we're different people in different situations, and I'm preaching to myself here again, we're hypocrites. Looking like one thing, but actually being something else. A hypocrite is an actor. Someone who pretends to be one thing, but in reality is something else. Someone who uses their words and actions to misrepresent reality to those around them. And it's easy to get down on hypocrites, but I think if we understand what's going on, we can have more compassion and maybe even see ourselves a little bit more clearly. The root of hypocrisy isn't evil intentions. The root of hypocrisy is the belief that I can't be accepted for who I am. It's not a good place to be in. I have to put up a front, adopt an image, show something else, or I'll be rejected. Hypocrisy is an unwilling... Hypocrisy is an unwilling recognition of our need. But all it does is undercut our sense of well-being by fragmenting who we are. We're not whole. And the solution to that, I think, or the beginning of it, is honesty. Faithfulness. Simply being able to admit our need. The last thing I'd like to point out, and there's more here, is that faithful people surround themselves with loving truth-tellers. Now, this is a tough one. It's tough because we have competing values here. This verse is really insightful. It says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for, the building, for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And simply what we see here is that speech, even truth, that is not helpful for building others up is unwholesome. Did you notice that? The word unwholesome could also be simply just translated rotten. True words that are not designed to build others up are rotten. You can tear people down with the truth as easily as you can build them up. I heard an interview this week with Norman Lear. Do you guys know who he is? It's okay if you don't. Norman Lear uh, is a famous television producer. Uh, most of his most famous work he did in the 70s. So if, you know, you're born in the 90s, you know, unless you're like on Nick at Night or something, you probably didn't see his shows. But he's famous for uh, progressive shows on television, like uh, All in the Family, uh, Good Times, The Jeffersons, uh, Mod, um, a lot of different sitcoms. He was very influential. And... He was so influential, made such a a big impact in the world of television that in the early 80s, when they set up the Television Hall of Fame, they had an inaugural class that went in the Hall of Fame for television. And among those first inductees were Lucille Ball, Milton Berle, uh, the founders of NBC and CBS, Edward R. Moreau, who's a famous newsman, and Norman Lear. So when Norman found out that he was going to be one of the first five or six people inducted into the Television Hall of Fame. Like, these are the greats of the greats, the most influential of the most influential. He called his mother. He said, Mom, I'm going in with Lucille Ball. I'm going in with Milton Berle. I'm going in with the Edward R. Murrow, the most trusted news person ever. And on the other end of the phone, this is what she said. Well, if that's what they want to do, Who am I to say no? (laughs) True statement. True. But how do you think that made Norman feel? Saying the truth by itself is not enough. Saying the truth in abusive, harsh, abrasive ways is rotten, sinful, stinks. And the alternative is in verse 15. It says, instead, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect Now, this is harder than it sounds, speaking the truth in love, because we have these competing values. So for the last couple hundred years, great thinkers like Foucault and Nietzsche and other people have said that every claim of truth is simply just a power grab. And so for us, sometimes the thought of claiming something is true seems like an unloving thing to do because we have seen people use truth as a power play just to beat people down and to get your own way. So we don't want to be unloving, abusive, power-hungry people. And at the same time, we're now at a bit of a crisis point where the disdain for believing anything is true Because the belief that that might, let me say that again, I'm stumbling, at the same time, we're now at a bit of a crisis point where the disdain for believing anything is true because that belief might put others down is paralyzing us. I read a book entitled Souls in Transition. It's written by a sociologist named Christian Smith and his partner, uh, Patricia Snell, and it follows young Americans through their development through like their high school years and into college and tries to understand how they view things spiritually and how it changes. And in the conclusion of their book, they describe what they call, quote, the contemporary cultural crisis of knowledge and value. And here's what they wrote. It's a little bit of a long little paragraph, but I think it says something that makes sense when I hear it. Uh, And they write, Emerging adults have been raised in a world involving certain outlooks and assumptions that they have clearly absorbed and that they in turn largely affirm and reinforce it is difficult if not impossible in this world that has come to be to actually know anything objectively real or true that can be rationally maintained in a way that might require people actually to change their minds or lives so most simply try not to be or so most simply try not to seriously assess much less criticize anything else that anyone else has chosen to believe feel or do Such a condition arguably encourages the true virtues of humility and openness to difference. Precious commodities, we think, that are all too scarce in the world today. But when life's push comes to shove for emerging adults, such a condition also thwarts many of them from ever being able to decide what they believe is really true, right, and good. On such matters, they are very often simply paralyzed Wishing they could be more definite, wanting to move forward, but simply not knowing how they might possibly know anything worthy of conviction and dedication. So we have these two extremes offered to us. We've got this make your own truth extreme, which at some point eventually breaks down and can leave us afraid to make decisions, let alone make promises. And this other extreme, which is using truth to gain a position of power and then using that power to beat people up, fear or pride, what a great choice. So what's the answer? Well, I'd like to suggest that the answer is integrity, that it's the virtue we've been looking at today, faithfulness. There's a story, you can read it in John chapter 18. I'm just going to summarize it for you today. It's a story of Jesus after he's been arrested. And he goes and he faces basically sort of like a trial in front of two different groups of people. First, he faces the really religious people. And they ask him questions. And he tells them the truth. And they get very angry and strike him across the face. Because the answers he give it, he's giving are challenging their power. So they send him to the Romans. He goes before this guy named Pontius Pilate who asks him very similar questions. And the thing about Jesus, he's got integrity. He gives the same answers. And he says, basically, this is the truth. And Pilate's response is, quote, what is truth? Both extremes of the spectrum that we've just been talking about today. And together, the Romans... And the religious leaders send him to the cross. And here's what I think we can learn. I'm not saying that if we're people of integrity, we're going to get killed. But I think what we see here uh, is the difference maker because the cross is the ultimate act of service. And it's that service that released power for transformation like no other event in world history. If you want to grow... If you want to experience wholeness, this is what you need. People around you who will speak truth in love, who will speak truth in a way that serves you and not them. And this is where the power of resurrection is released. So we were saying um, that all along the series that virtues are things that develop over time through small choices that we make that seem unnatural, but because we make all these small choices over time, they become second nature. So when it really counts, without thinking, you do uh, the right thing, basically. So what are some small things that you can do? Here's some small things. One, be honest about your struggles. Now, you can be as honest as you want to be to start, but specifically, Choose some area, some things that are weaknesses for you and share those with someone. Be honest about your struggles. Find a way to start doing that. Do it in small ways. Second, serve your friends by challenging them. If you love your friends, sometimes they need a nudge. They need you to ask them a really good question about a decision they're about to make or decisions they've been making. Serve your friends, though. It's not about you. It's not to benefit you. But sp- try to find ways to speak the truth in love. And third, and this is what I'm working on, if you've made promises in your life, and one of the things that's tough for me is, oh, sure. This is my big promise. This is what's going to happen, right? But I don't do anything between now and then to get that big promise to actually happen. So it's just this vague thing out there somewhere. Whatever the big promises you've made in your life, what's something you can do tomorrow to move towards that? small thing. What can it be? Let's pray. God, I don't feel like I'm the guy to tell people what to do <laughs> uh, in every area on this, in this sermon, but I am a guy who's hungry to see these traits in my own life. And I pray that that's a hunger that would be in every heart uh, that's here today. Amen. Um.